there's a lot we can still learn about World War II. You know, Hitler at first is a failed artist, and in a certain way it comes full circle. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we take a fresh look at the stories of the Monuments Men. Without their bravery, the world may well have lost the Mona Lisa and hundreds of other works that define Western art. The fingerprint of these remarkable men and women who risked their lives, two of whom were killed during combat, impacts the cultural world we enjoy today, and I think we owe them a great debt of gratitude. We'll hear how their stories are being told in a major motion picture filmed on location in Germany. And a fishing village in England is attracting fans of a TV series where the show's location is a big part of the charm. They've now got people coming outside of the short summer season here. They have people from all over the world coming to visit because of Doc Martin and things. Actor Martin Clunes tells us what it's like to film Doc Martin in Cornwall. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One of the most charming drama series airing on public TV takes place in a simple village, a fishing village on the Cornish coast of the south of England. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, the star of Doc Martin tells us what it's like to make his TV series on location where some of his American fans might even get to be an extra in a scene. But first, it's 70 years now since the Nazis systematically looted the art and treasures of churches, museums, and Jewish families in Europe. Many of the famous artworks that we stand in line to see today wouldn't be there if it weren't for the courageous work of a handful of unlikely soldiers known as the Monuments Men. Robert Edsel has written about them in his books, The Monuments Men, Rescuing Da Vinci, and Saving Italy. He returns to Travel with Rick Steves today with Grant Hesloff. Grant is a production partner of George Clooney. They shared the Oscar for Best Picture with the movie Argo in 2013, and now they've made a movie of The Monuments Men. It appears in theaters starting February 7th. Monuments Men Radio is about to go live. Calling London, calling London and all the ships at sea. We read you loud and clear. You know, this new movie is going to introduce a lot of people to a topic that they probably never even occurred to them. Robert, tell us about the Monuments Men. Who were they and why should we know about them? This is a group of men and women, museum directors, curators, art historians, artists themselves, many educators, uh, average age about 40, the most unlikely of soldiers who walked away from having life made to volunteer to be a new kind of soldier, one charged with saving rather than destroying. Uh, there were only a handful of them in uh, Italy and in Northern Europe, charged with initially trying to protect monuments and structures from damage by Allied bombing, hence the name Monuments Men. But very quickly, they were on the hunt for the millions of cultural objects stolen by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in what became the greatest treasure hunt in history, ultimately finding so many of these things and getting them back to the countries from which they were stolen. Why does this matter today? Well, we watched, uh, I think with horror, the aftermath of the looting of the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad in 2003 when there weren't monuments officers, and it was overlooked trying to protect the cultural treasures of that great civilization. You know, so many of the churches, museums we visit today throughout Europe have the great things that we go to see because of the work of the Monuments Men and museums throughout the United States have works mm -hmm. of art that were found in some salt mine or a cave by the Monuments officers and restituted after the war and then some point in time sold and found their way to museums in this country. So the fingerprint of these remarkable men and women who risked their lives, two of whom were killed during combat, impacts the cultural world we enjoy today and I think we owe them a great uh, debt of gratitude, and it's a tremendous debt of gratitude. We're all going to owe uh, Grant <laughs> and George Clooney and the remarkable cast they've assembled for this tremendous film, which is going to make the story accessible to people all over the world. Now, Grant Hesloff, tell us uh, about this amazing cast that you've assembled for the movie. Well, we have uh, George, who you know also directed the film, and and uh, we co-wrote it. And obviously George Clooney, George Clooney, yeah, right, and uh, Matt Damon, and uh, Bill Murray, and Kate Blanchett. It's just a terrific cast. Now, when you have a when you have a group of soldiers, usually they're uh, tough young guys. But uh, this is not your typical group of soldiers. What Matt Damon's the youngest; he's in his forties. That's right. That was what was so appealing to us was the idea of doing a film not only that resonated to us in terms of what's happened with all of this looted art, but also the idea that um, you know it's a little bit of the gang who couldn't shoot straight in terms mm -hmm. of these guys. And you know, it's fun to see. George and Bill and Bob Balaban, Jean Dujardin, play these kind of um, 
fish out of water rules. Were you inspired, Grant, by any of the historical characters in particular? Give us an example of how fun it was for you putting this together to to bring some of these historical characters uh, to life. All these characters are inspired by historical characters, the characters that, you know, Robert wrote in such detail in his book. Some of them are combinations. You know, what you often have to do is because there were hundreds of monuments men and, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously we couldn't tell that story. So we really focused on seven that we thought would best tell the story. The the real-life character that George is uh, based on is probably the closest in terms of what we stuck to. And and, uh, Mm -hmm. he is actually very similar to George in a lot of ways. And if you see a picture of of him, you'll be shocked by Mm. how, I think, how much (laughs) they look alike. Robert, you talked about how this was the greatest theft in history, followed by the greatest treasure hunt in history. Give us a little example. What exactly was going on? What were the Nazis up to, and and what was their sort of uh, modus operandi? Well, I tell this in Saving Italy in in really great detail, and it's research that has evolved here in just the last few years. I mean, Adolf Hitler makes this first formal state visit to Italy in 1938, and he stops in Rome, but he spends 10 hours in Florence on his way out of the country, the last 10 hours of his five-day journey. And he allocates two of those hours to walk through the Uffizi Museum and the Pitti Palace, walking across the Vasari Corridor. And it's there seeing these great collections of the Medicis where he realizes what's possible. And he goes back to Germany and uh, begins plans for this Führer Museum, what's going to be one of the world's great museums. It's going to house some of the works that he believes are some of the greatest uh, pictures, Hmm. uh, sculpture, and other things. Museum directors and curators from Germany start visiting these countries that are going to be invaded, making lists of works of art. They're going to be stolen concurrent with the invasions. And it begins a premeditated looting like we've never seen before, uh, just part of this cultural legacy that we're left with today. Well, it is an amazing thing to think that Hitler, tyrant that he was, trying to exterminate the Jewish race, was also right in the forefront of his thinking, assembling this museum. It was going to be in his where the town where he was born and grew up, Linz, right? Well, that's right. And I think Grant and George and their script and the wonderful acting of this really dedicated group of artists have brought to life this dramatic plot of Hitler to not only steal these things and have them go to his museum, but the great trauma in the closing days of the war, a period I refer to as the void, where uh, Nazi Germany is not in control anymore, but the Allies are not in control yet. Hmm. And the great danger to these works of art that are hidden in salt mines and caves and castles, too real to believe, but there, there we are with the story, is that Nazi fanatics are determined to execute this Nero order, this order that Hitler has issued to destroy the infrastructure of the country, but they've interpreted it to mean also works of art that uh, he had destined for his collection. And it's this race against time that the Allies, the Monuments Men in particular, are faced with to try and find these works of art and save them from complete destruction. Also the idea and the uh, sort of the irony, the, the idea that, you know, Hitler at first is a failed artist and that in, in a certain way it comes full circle. He also, you know, fancies himself as a, the sort of great arbiter of art and what is the right kind of art. You know, they destroyed so much art and sold off so much of the pieces that, you know, would would boggle the mind. And then at the end, as Robert says, he writes this decree that in the end could destroy all of the great art that he was trying to steal. That's incredible. I mean, you you know about his crazed, we're going to bring Berlin down to rubble and fight to the last man. But he actually specifically said, and will destroy the art too. I mean, there was actually a danger of his guys going into these caves with flamethrowers and just destroying all those beautiful canvases? Well, that did take place in some areas. The order did not specify art, and personally, I don't believe that he intended for the art to be destroyed, but it's quite clear that there were many, after he's committed suicide, there were many Nazi fanatics, in particular these Austrians, and one fellow that was from Hitler's, uh, his province, Hmm. that believed that they knew exactly what the intent of the Fuhrer was and placed bombs in the key salt mine holding so many of the Fuhrer's works, intending that they would be detonated and between the rubble and the flooding would destroy these works. So there's no question that works Hmm. were destroyed and that many others were intended to be. Robert Edsel and Grant Hesloff are reminding us right now on Travel with Rick Steves of the important work Allied men and women did to locate and rescue the great art of Europe that was stolen by the Nazis in World War II. 
In Robert's latest book called Saving Italy, he depicts the intrigue between Nazi generals, the Vatican, American operations, and Italian officials, and the heroics of the Monuments Men. Now their stories being portrayed on the big screen. Grant Hesloff and George Clooney have made a major motion picture of the Monuments Men, and they filmed it in Germany. They tell us that with this many people dying, who cares about art? They're wrong because it's exactly what we're fighting for, for our culture and for our way of life. Grant, you mentioned uh, Hitler was sort of the arbiter of what is good art and so on. What kind of art did Hitler love and what kind of art did he hate? He loved art that portrayed uh, the white race. The, the art that he didn't like was what you know they termed the degenerate art. You know, so we're talking about Picasso, Moreau, Dali. I mean, we're talking about some, you know, amazing artists, but they were modern at the time. And some of the art that they stole, particularly in our piece, the Ghent altarpiece, was a piece of art that they felt that was theirs. You know, it had been ah, stolen back and forth. It belonged forth. to be in Germany. That oh. really is one of the big pieces of the film. In our film, there are really two, you know, sort of central pieces of art. That is one of them. That was in Belgium, so he came to Ghent and wanted to take it back to Germany for after the war. That's exactly right. Robert? Yeah, in fact, the, the Ghent altarpiece has been moved by the Belgians because they knew he was coming for it. And they've tried to get it to the Vatican, right. and they've made it as far as southern France when the war breaks out, and they're stuck. And they try and hide it. The Germans know where it is, and within... Uh, a year or two, they send on Hitler's orders a uh, crew to go pick it up and take it back out of the French mm. possession. So, you know, this is an iconic work, one of the great masterpieces of painting in Western civilization, and a work that Hitler felt like this has Germanic origins. This is mm -hmm. our work. It's a way to, to right the wrongs of World War I and the, the disgrace of Campania, where the Germans were forced to surrender. Um, one of the other great works that Grant was alluding to was the Bruges Madonna by Michelangelo, mm -hmm. the only sculpture of Michelangelo's that in his lifetime left Italy uh, that was uh, brazenly stolen in the middle of the night by German soldiers dressed in, uh, to load these things up in Red Cross trucks mm. and uh, wrap it up in a mattress where the monuments officers find it in those closing days still in the same mattress that it was taken in. And 60 or 70 years later, when a tourist like me goes to Bruges or to Ghent, the first thing I want to see is that Ghent altarpiece, that glorious Ghent altarpiece, where it was designed to be, right there in that beautiful church and in Bruges to see that Michelangelo statue. I think the only statue by Michelangelo in the northern part of Europe, right there where it was supposed to be in, in that church in Bruges. Thanks to the Monument Men. We're gonna hang the washing on the green line If the green line's still there There's more with Grant Hesloff and Robert Edsel and their work in telling the world the remarkable stories of the Monuments Men in just a moment. Later in the hour, actor Martin Clunes tells us what it's like to film the comedy drama series Doc Martin in a fishing village on the coast of Cornwall. History and drama come together on location today on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. The greatest theft in history is followed by the greatest treasure hunt in the world, and it's still a work in progress. We're continuing our conversation right now about the courageous work of the Monuments Men to repatriate the art and objects stolen by the Nazis. 
Grant Hesloff has co-written and produced the movie The Monuments Men, and it's based on the book of the same name by Robert Edsel. There are guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Grant, you mentioned um, degenerate art, the, the kind of art that Hitler just thought was inappropriate. Didn't you write, Robert, in your book uh, about the Van Gogh landscape that uh, Hitler said, uh, anyone who sees and paints the sky green and pastures blue ought to be sterilized? I did, and it's a, it's a horrifying thought, but it was at the heart of his vision of using art as a weapon of propaganda to try and convince the German people not only the art that he thought was good that presented this super race, which were the 19th century Germanic painters that Hitler felt had also, like him, been rejected, but to denigrate the works of art which he felt like showed a a negative image and also attacked the people that were painters, who he viewed as Jews, Slavs, people that didn't have proper vision, homosexuals, anyone that was painting nature something other than the way Mm. it looked, which, of course, were the abstract painters of the time, the modern painters, as Grant referred to them. And so these works of art in Germany's museums were removed on the order of the Fuhrer, some 16 to 20,000 works of art. Some were destroyed. Many were placed for sale in the marketplace to get rid of them and try and raise currency. But Germany suffered greatly at the hands of the Fuhrer. And even today, we can splice a little bit into our sightseeing. I know the Haus der Kunst in Munich is, is one of the buildings from the fascist uh, period that survives. And, of course, Hitler built it to uh, celebrate his Aryan uh, proper art. But today... Munich's Haus der Kunst survives, and oftentimes it's filled with what Hitler would have considered degenerate, and it's just kind of delightful to be able to go there and to celebrate art that didn't uh, toe the line according to the Nazi ideals. Hey, Grant, when, how did you first learn about the, the work of the Monuments Men? I, uh, Robert's been into this for a long time, but how were you first exposed to it? Oddly enough, I just was in, I was in a bookstore, and I was browsing, and uh, as you often do, you just start picking up books because you like the cover. I read a little blurb in it, and I said, this sounds interesting, and I took it home and read it, and that was really it. That's amazing. Robert, imagine, have you have a book in a bookstore, and the guy who won the Oscar for Argo for <laughs> it stumbles onto your book and uh, thinks, hey, I can make a movie about your book. What did you think, Robert, when Grant contacted you? That Grant and George are the two smartest people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what was it, Grant, that made you think this would be a good movie? I like the idea of, I always wanted to do a, a movie set in World War II. I think it's a fascinating period. But there have been a lot of movies, you know, set against this. And this was a story that I hadn't heard before. I'd never heard this story before. And I liked the idea of this crew of, of, you know, sort of semi-reluctant guys Mm -hmm. who go in and really unearth this stockpile of the greatest art the history has ever known. Kind of unlikely heroes, kind of Clark Kent's a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I shared the book with George, and he felt the same way, and we felt that we felt that this was really a story that we could tell. So, Robert and Grant, how did you go back and forth? You only get, like, two hours for a movie, and, Robert, I imagine there were some frustrations on your part because <laughs> you want to tell the whole story. How did that work out? I can't say enough good things about working with Grant and George. They heard me out all the time. Um, we knocked heads on some things in a collaborative way. They didn't always agree with my opinion. Sometimes at the passage of time, I could see um, I'm glad they didn't because they had a, a better idea of doing things. But they always heard me out. And that's a, mm-hmm. you know, that's such a, a great privilege to be able to express the years of experience I have on this thing. They have a daunting task. You know, I can write a book that has as many pages as I want to in it, but they're limited to two hours. And uh, they have flexibility with the historical record that I didn't have. But it's a real challenge to tell the story. It was a challenge to write it, and they were ambitious in their undertaking of trying to tell the story as comprehensively as as time allowed. And I think they've done a tremendous job and a great service to the Monuments Men and created an exciting, dramatic film at the same time. It was fun. Robert, before we started writing, Robert came out basically and just gave George and I, I think it was about a week that we spent uh, in the conference room in our offices, and he basically just... It was like a week-long lecture of not only the Monuments Men, but sort of, you know, World War II as a whole. Not that we didn't know a lot about it, but in the context of this story. So it was great, and it was really incredibly helpful. You know, I have to say, I mean, I spent, as uh, Grant said, a week in their office, uh, Mm -hmm. Monday through Friday. We started every day, 9.30, 10, finished at 5 or so, and uh, George got up to take one phone call in five days. I mean, these, these are two guys that sat there with uh, notepads in front of them, and there were no interruptions for a week, and just absolutely buried in the material. And I can tell you by the time I'd arrived, 
they already had storyboards up on the wall focusing on all the characters trying to narrow down which ones we went to so the amount of commitment that they've made to this thing and the passion that they've brought to it over and above the work I'd put into it is was really gratifying for me to see and exciting to be a part of. Now, the film was uh, set mostly in Germany, is that right? Yeah, it's set mostly in Germany. We shot over three quarters in Germany. We shot in a lot in Berlin. We shot at Babelsberg Studios there, which have their own historical... Uh, well, this is the studio where Lenny Riefenstahl hmm. uh, oh, made wow. all her films. The floor that we were on, actually, the line producer of, of our film, the office that she shared with somebody else was the office of Garibald's. Mm, the Minister of Propaganda. Yeah, so oh. it, it was odd to be making this film and, you know, have this presence, which is a very, you know, it's very creepy, obviously. I love it, though. You're right there where he was conning everybody with his films, and now you're telling the story of the saving of the art. Well, that was the fun part. Um, and then we shot in the Hearts Mountain region, which was really quite something. Mm. That's where we shot all the mines. Beautiful, beautiful spot. And then we shot in uh, the UK for a bit as well. So, Grant, this is a travel show that we're on right now, and uh, there's travelers. We're going to Germany. Well, what did you learn from the whole experience from a traveler's point of view? Where, what did you enjoy in Germany? The Hearts Mountains is sort of a undiscovered uh, fairy tale land for a lot of travelers. Yeah, the Hearts Mountain Range is just, if you like outdoors and beauty and hiking, exploring little hamlets and little sort of off the beaten track, you know, restaurants, it's great. It's sort of that, you know, Germany that you imagine, you know, mm-hmm. the whole thing. I mean, it's really... And it's the Germany that a lot of Americans overlook. I, my, my theory is we go to the part of Germany that we occupied after the war, which was the other end, the south end, but you're talking about northern Germany here, the Hartz right. Mountains near the, the city of Braunschweig. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking about the heroic efforts that rescued countless works of art and national treasures from being looted or destroyed in World War II. Our guests are two men who are eager to tell the world about the Monuments Men and the role they played in organizing what you could call the greatest treasure hunt in history. Robert Edsel discovered the untold stories of the Monuments officers when he quit his job in the oil industry and went to Italy to study art. And eventually, he started the Monuments Men Foundation. Grant Hesloff learned about their work when he picked up one of Robert's books between flights at an airport bookshop. And now Grant and his co-author and producer, George Clooney, have adapted some of their stories into the motion picture The Monuments Men, which starts playing in theaters on February 7th. You want to get in the war? The Monuments Men, signed by Roosevelt. Oh, I see that. And to put a team together and try to protect what's left and find what's missing. Aren't you a little old for that? Yes. You want to go into a war zone and tell our boys what they can and cannot blow up. That's the idea. Okay, how many men? For now, six. Jesus. Mm. With you, that's seven. <laughs> that's much better. Grant, was there the saga of a particular piece of art that, that grabbed you? I mean, it's amazing to me. They think they would roll up these art masterpieces like a, a carpet and hide them in somebody's uh, you know, back shed. What particular piece was really an exciting story for you? Well, I mean, as I said before, the Ghent altarpiece and the Bruges Madonna, those to myself and George were the most fascinating. In terms of storytelling, those were the ones that really, really popped so out. So the, the Michelangelo statue, it's about the size of, of a grown person, and it's uh, what, a Madonna and child. And, uh, it's a Madonna and child, yeah. And what, what happened to that in the war? It was stolen in the middle of the night by the Germans uh, on their way out. And as Robert said before, they dressed up as Red Cross workers and pulled up in an ambulance to this church and said they needed help or they were there for something, and they basically took the Madonna, put it on a stretcher, wrapped it in mattresses, and took it out. That's amazing. Robert, are there other uh, masterpieces that we see in our regular, you know, everyday touring that we should appreciate would not be there had it not been for the heroics of the Monuments Men? Oh, the list is endless, mm-hmm. Rick. I mean, from the some of the paintings that Hitler removed from museums that were sold, the self-portrait by Van Gogh that's at the Fogg Museum in Harvard, uh, was bought by an American Jewish collector and ultimately donated it. That picture perhaps would have been destroyed had it not been purchased. Grant, you were, you were filming there in the studios of Goebbels there in Berlin and so on. Uh, what was the German response to your work? Did you feel that people were reluctant that you were telling the story or, or were they appreciative that you were telling this story? Yeah, I was much more on the appreciative side. I mean, you know, you got to remember that how many films have been made about, you know, Hitler and Nazi Germany and, and the war. The funny part is, you know, as we auditioned some actors to play German roles, invariably they would come in and they would be too nice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we sort of realized that, you know, they've been playing these 
bad Nazis for so long that they're just trying to mix it up a little bit, I think. But in terms of the crew that we worked with and the people who owned the locations that we shot at, everybody was lovely and everybody was, you know, was really happy that this story was being told. Well, this is a close call for all of Western culture, German and French and English, and uh, for all of us to enjoy. This exactly. Is, this is the patrimony of, of everybody, not, not one society. Robert, as you studied Monuments Men and the soldiers that were sent over there to save the art, did you encounter just everyday Europeans who were kind of caught in the crossfire that also were heroic and, uh, and instrumental in, in saving the art? No question about it. The Monuments officers, you know, only got there at the point in time the Allies had boots on the ground. Uh, long before then, there were efforts on the part of, in Italy as an example, custodians that protected things. In fact, the Last Supper was almost destroyed by Allied bombing mm-hmm. in an effort to try and force Italy out of the war had it not been for the custodians in Milan who placed sandbags and boards in front of the wall, uh, it would have been just absolutely destroyed. The, oh. the east wall uh, was uh, blown out, the roof was gone, and the thing was exposed to the elements. And it's just one part of uh, important part of our legacy that would have been missing. So, you know, look, the Germans, I think, were very supportive of the film for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is those works of art that are in Museum Island today mm-hmm. were works that many of which were found in salt mines by the Monuments Men, and even though they belonged to Germany, huh. were protected and safeguarded and ultimately returned there. And it's something I think uh, people in Germany know very little about, and it's one of the reasons they're so excited about the telling of the story, oh, because yeah. they didn't know what happened to their works of art or how they survived the war. And you're referring to Museum Island in Berlin? Museum Island in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, this is, uh, by the way, for people who are traveling, there's this wonderful island right in the center of Berlin that is now being completely renovated, and it's going to be one collection of museums with one admission ticket that takes us from Nefertiti and Egyptian treasures all the way up to the German... Uh, uh, romantic art of the 19th century and then to modern art today. And so much of that would not be here today if it wasn't for both the Monuments Men and uh, citizens. Uh, it's like all hands on deck. We we picture uh, Londoners coming out to save the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. You can picture uh, Italians putting sandbags all around Michelangelo's David in Florence. It's it's quite a, a breathtaking and emotional story the more we know about it. And Grant, in the trailer, I noticed that you included the challenge of stopping Allied bombers from destroying art as, as they worked so hard to win the war. Talk a bit about that. Well, I mean, it was a, not an easy thing to do, but the Monuments Men did try to, you know, point out that there were certain churches and buildings and monuments that we didn't, that we didn't want to bomb. Yeah, Monte Cassino, you know, we, we really destroyed that. And that was really, for us, as we started to work with Robert, that we felt like that was sort of the turning point. Hmm in terms of why they had to put together this group of people and and try to save. Well, that was actually uh, a turning point. The the Monuments Men were uh, created when we had this chilling uh, Monday morning wake up and realize we've destroyed Monte Cassino. Well, I think it was cumulative, but that was one of the, the big pieces because it's a war. You got to, you got to, you know, you can't like tiptoe around when you're fighting an all-out war. But on the other hand, people recognize that uh, we're all going to suffer greatly if we don't pay attention to the patrimony. That's exactly right. Our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves are telling us about the role a group of people we call the Monuments Men played in organizing the greatest treasure hunt in history. Robert Edsel started the Monuments Men Foundation and writes about their stories in his latest book called Saving Italy. And Grant Hesloff co-wrote and produced the Monuments Men movie with George Clooney and a major league cast. It starts playing in theaters February 7th. Robert, you know, just recently in the news, what, in the fall of 2013, they found, what, a thousand pieces of great art in some home behind a wall in Munich. Uh, is there still art being recovered today? Yes, there. this was a case that is a complicated case, some 1,400 works of art that were found in the, the apartment of the son of one of the, an art dealer that had Nazi, strong Nazi ties. But it goes to show, this is the tip of the iceberg. There are hundreds of thousands of missing works of art and cultural objects that are out there today. I spent a lot of time discussing this with uh, Grant and with George in our meetings, and then, of course, with the studios, with Sony in particular and Fox. And it's part of our campaign to not only entertain the public and share this great story, but also capitalize on it, on raising uh, public visibility. And so we've created a a website, supportthemonumentsmen.com, which is a chance if uh, someone had a soldier in their family that came home during World War II and perhaps picked up something as a souvenir that they might now know as a cultural object or just have a question about it. 
Uh, they can contact us. Uh, the foundation's a not-for-profit entity. It doesn't charge anybody for doing mm-hmm. anything, and perhaps we can identify it and find out who the rightful owner is. So are you saying that conceivably somebody could have um, taken a piece of art home from Europe and it's just gathering dust in their granddaughter's attic right now? I am absolutely saying that, and we the foundation's had a number of instances working with both living veterans as well as uh, heirs to veterans that uh, had things in their attics, whether they were uh, photo albums or important documents taken from Hitler's home in Berchtesgaden, picked up as a souvenir, sometimes they're works of art. Uh, the people, you know, these are it's soldiering, and a lot of these young kids knew they were going to come home and tell their family, hey, I was in Hitler's home, and they were concerned nobody would believe them, and they wanted to mm-hmm. be able to say, look, here's here's an example <laughs> of it. And they didn't understand the cultural importance at the time, and it speaks to the magnanimity of American soldiers that they want to come forward at this late stage in their life, and if they have something that belongs to someone else, get it back to them. I got to say, I was up at Eagle's Nest, you know, in Berchtesgarten in southern Germany, which is Hitler's sort of uh, mountain cap hideaway, and God, the the euphoria of the Allies, I, I could just feel it when they had taken Hitler's mountain retreat. And you can just imagine, it would just be human nature to grab every eagle and every flagpole and every anything you could and take it home. But right now, people are recognizing uh, the value of that to society in general. Grant, apart from that, what impact do you hope this movie will have on, on your movie-going public? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it's a fantastic story. And it's, as Robert said, it's the greatest treasure hunt ever mm-hmm. told. And I hope people just come and really, you know, and just enjoy it. And like I said, if in the course of that, we can help people to understand what happened during the war to monuments and so forth, that would be uh, just icing on the cake. Well, I think one of the great legacies that Grant and George are going to have from this film over Mm -hmm. and above having a fantastic film is there's not going to be a military campaign that's planned ever again that uh, leaders don't ask, even though they may not know the details, hey, do we have monuments men lined up? And that's going to be because there are going to be hundreds of millions of people all over the world that know who the monuments men were and what they did in a truly world war. And that is a great credit to the filmmakers and to the studio that's made the funds available to make this film. Boy, that in itself is a huge accomplishment. Uh, Much as we'd love to avoid wars, there's going to be wars, but there's always opportunities to minimize the loss of the art and the and the treasures of these cultures that have to host these terrible conflicts. Grant Hesloff and Robert Edsel, thank you so much. What a beautiful team you seem to make with bringing your passions together and amplifying this important message. Best wishes with The Monuments Men. Sounds like a great movie. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. You can join the hunt for treasures that are still missing from World War II at monumentsmen.com. We also have more details and links to our guests in this week's show details. You'll find that in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Next, our on-location setting is for one of the top drama series on public television. We'll get an inside look at the filming of Doc Martin on the scenic coast of Cornwall and hear how that adds character to the show. Your chance to check in with Doc Martin. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. One of the most-watched British dramas on public TV here in the U.S. happens to feature its setting in a small fishing village in Cornwall as an integral part of the storyline. Joining us right now from his home studio in England for a behind-the-scenes look at how Doc Martin is filmed on location is the star and co-producer of the series, Martin Clunes. Martin, thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Your show is set in a cute little village on the northern coast of Cornwall, Port Isaac, You've turned it into a fictional fishing village, Port Wen. Yeah. How did you choose Port Isaac for the location of your show? Well, it sort of, in a way, that, that kind of chose us, because there was a film called Saving Grace uh, that was made in Port Isaac, and mm. in it I played a doctor called Martin. Sky Pictures, who made that movie, which was more successful in the States, curiously enough, than it was in England, although it was an English cast, you know, set in England. But Sky, who made that, wanted us to... They tested that character of the doctor, and... 
we set about a little kind of franchise of making some spin-offs from that movie for TV. Okay. Um, with me playing that doctor. And then they folded <laughs> after we made the first two. But these were of a different, the character from the film Saving Grace, who was called Martin, same as me. Because when, when I told people I'm going to be talking with Martin Clunes, you've got such a following in the United States. When you think about the, the phenomenal success of the series, do you attribute it to just a, a quirky look at a small-town English community or the, the crankiness and the honesty of Doc Martin or, or the quaint setting or what? I think it's got to be um, a combination of the lot. I know that that we were surprised after the first season how much people picked up on the, the sort of love story. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we kind of focused with subsequent seasons on that. And that has usually been our main motor and, and remains that, you know, of, of trying to do something new between the Doc and Louisa because it, we didn't want it to get uh, repetitive. Plus, you know, we don't have the luxury. We can't really afford a huge table of writers like you guys have. Um, <laughs> so we've got a small bunch of writers and it's a really hard thing to write when you have a main protagonist who doesn't like anybody and nobody really likes him. To a certain degree, is it a, like a microcosm of uh, a classic English village from, from an Englishman's <laughs> point of view? I'd hope not. Um. <laughs> <laughs> because you've got these quirky characters, you know, the lazy receptionist and, uh, you know, a dull cop and uh, a beautiful school teacher. It, it seems like it could be a little town anywhere in Britain. Well, possibly, possibly. What we wanted to do is, you know, there's a lot of movies like Doc Hollywood and things where you have a smart city doctor being dumbfounded by, you know, the idiots he finds himself amongst. We didn't want to do that. And so we, what we tried to do was to unite a small community in horror at their general practitioner. <laughs> you know, I, I find that that's an, a very strangely appealing thing about the show is just the crankiness and the honesty of, of Doc Martin. Mm, it's good fun, isn't it? It's great. Now, Port Wynn was uh, chosen, I mean, it worked for the movie, and the, and the townsfolk knew what it was like to be featured. What was the town's reaction now after five seasons or six seasons? Um, well, we've been through various shades of reaction from the village, but actually this, this season I felt more than ever before that actually, uh, you know, they've accepted us and, you know, it's, it's been a double-edged sword. You know, it's built for visitors, Port Isaac, and they were visiting there long before we were. And everything is, you know, all those cottages are for rent and our crew kind of live in the set. But they've now got people coming outside of the short summer season here. They have people from all over the world coming to visit because of Doc Martin and things. And uh, so anyone with a business there is pleased. Well, I think the Cornwall is, to me, sort of the epitome of a tourist zone in Britain. And all yeah, these absolutely. towns along the coast are just uh, geared up for tourism. So... From an economic point of view, it must be a huge plus. I, mean, I would imagine the nearby towns are, are jealous of Port Isaac. Um, yeah, I guess so. But it's not so great for second homeowners because the you know the peaceful little place. <laughs> right. They brought their second home. <laughs> you know. But to be honest, we're there more often than they are. <laughs> to me, the the charm of it is uh, the appeal of of Cornwall. When an American thinks of Cornwall, that's sort of the epitome of quaint. And it's just such a delightful, you know, venue for all of this fun, mm. quirky, small-town action. When people in London look at Cornwall or, or Port Wen or Port Isaac, is that their cliché also? Or what do they think about Cornwall? No, I think, um, you know, lots of people grew up going to Cornwall for holidays and mm -hmm. things. It's in a lot of people's makeup, you know, to, to visit Cornwall because it's, I think it's the only bit of England that's like that. It's the only place that has a surf culture. The North Shore of Cornwall has a surf culture now. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, yeah. South Coast is better for sailing, and it's right. sort of more, you get palms growing there, and it's golden sandy beaches, but the North Coast where we are is rugged and tough. And I think that's also, we use, you know, aerial photography sometimes to just show where that village is. It's sort of tucked in an armpit of the coast. That is a beautiful dimension of the show, and it seems to me you put a lot of energy in that just to remind people this is a dramatic, gorgeous slice of Britain. Yeah, we do. We are at great pains. If you're going to take a picture, take a nice one. And we're, you know, we're blessed with that set. And to get that depth when you shoot across the harbour of the background is lovely. And we're, I think we're the last drama in England to still be shot on film. Ah, now why do you do that? Because we like it and we still think it looks nicer. The man behind the popular TV series, Doc Martin, is our guide to Cornwall right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
Martin Clune stars as the grumpy doctor in the comedy-drama series. Doc Martin has quickly become one of the most popular programs in England, and now it's a major series on public television in the United States as well. Season 6 of Doc Martin makes its debut this week on many public TV stations. Check your listings for your local airtimes. Acorn Media distributes DVD box sets of the series as well at acornonline.com. Let's open the phones at 877-333-7425 for your calls for Martin Clunes as we get the inside scoop on Doc Martin and its setting on the north coast of the Cornish Peninsula in England. Rebecca's on the line in Granite Bay, California. Rebecca, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Yes, I got involved uh, watching Doc Martin during my chemo recovery. I had been watching a lot of murder mysteries, and, and I do like that. But uh, when I saw Doc Martin, I thought I would give that a try, and I was so delighted to see this unique story with these quirky characters in this beautiful setting over there in in England along the coast, and the the flowers and the seagulls, and the unique storylines. It was just a refreshing show to watch, and I had to pace myself so I didn't uh, go through too many of the episodes too quickly, but... uh, (laughs) uh, it was a delight to watch, especially during oh, that difficult that's great. time. And from watching that, I determined that I was, when I heard you were going for Series 6, that I would come to Port Isaac and come see it for myself. So uh, it was a special thrill to meet uh, many of the crew and the cast. I got my picture with you, uh, along with uh, many other your admiring fans that uh, came to Port Isaac. And uh, it, was, it was a very delight. Uh, the people that I met... Uh, as part of your crew, were great. The whole experience there in Port Isaac, it, it was just a fabulous trip. I, I couldn't oh, believe so the year before when I was ill that uh, such a thing could happen. It was like falling through my computer screen and finding myself there in Port Isaac. Oh. It, it was fabulous. So, thanks for oh, the so experience, and, and I hope the show does continue uh, and go on I with I think we've uh, got one more in us. So you got, you're, you're committed to a Series 7 then, Martin, is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Hey, Rebecca, what was it like being in Port Wynn or Port Isaac uh, when they're filming there? Uh, well, it was really interesting. Uh, you know, what other opportunity would you have to actually watch, especially one of your favorite programs, but to watch how things were being handled? And, and the crew uh, that we dealt with, I know some of the crew by first name, and they would wave to me when I would walk by at times and even... Uh, you know, uh, some of the, the cast were lovely, and they you would see them from day to day and chat with them, and wow. they would, you know, say hello. They were just so gracious. I always wondered about the beautiful flowers that were there, how much might have just been added for scenery, but uh, those wildflowers are genuine and fabulous. And to hear the seagulls and, and to see the, the ocean right there, it was, it was just a delight. It was so much more than what I dreamed Oh, there's a good smell to it, too, isn't there? A good smell of the sea. Yes. You know, that's a charming, very understandably attractive part of Britain, the southwest corner of Britain. Rebecca, thanks so much for your call. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Thanks, Rebecca. It's nice to talk to you you. again. So, Martin, when when tourists and visitors and fans of the show are there, is there like a ribbon set up where people stand behind the line and they actually watch you work? Um, no, I don't think we're as elaborate as a ribbon, but, uh, you know, somebody... Kind of somebody <laughs> says, stand back, yeah. And what's great is that nowadays, when we first started and nobody knew us, we were a real nuisance to holidaymakers, but now most of the holidaymakers have come to see us. So they're really on side and really quite, um, you know, supportive of our endeavours and they like to watch it. And a little bit too much, once we had a... There was one episode where oh, I was being rude to someone... And uh, oh, it was Louisa <laughs> stuck an ice cream on my forehead, mm. and it you know it took a few takes, and there'd been experiments with prop men and consistency and stickiness of ice cream, <laughs> and we'd had a few test runs and everything, and I think we got about maybe four or five takes, and you know there was a lot of cleaning up and everything, and what we wanted was for the cone to just stick and stay on my forehead for you know four or five seconds. And that must have been entertaining for the other guests. Well, yes, it was. And then, and then finally, we got it, and the thing stuck, and they started clapping. <laughs> so we had to go again. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> well, live audience. But it's not least, a live audience know, show. <laughs> it's uh, supportive. And we got Oliver on the line in Arlington, Virginia. Oliver, thanks for your call. Oh, hi. Thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. I've been to Port Isaac. 
a couple of times and uh, saw the filming. But my question mostly is regarding the um, filming outdoors. And I know that it's for the beauty of the show, for the beauty of the, the scenery and the background and everything, but how do you think that... Um, filming outdoors adds to like the storyline because there's a lot of trouble and a lot of work to shoot all of those scenes outdoors and I mean I guess you really could have just had a few shots of the doc walking up to his house and the doc walk walking here but you guys spend so much time outdoors shooting so I mean apart from it just being beautiful scenery how do you think it adds to the storyline? I don't, uh, I I don't know if it always does necessarily add to the storyline but you're not just selling the storyline, you know. I think we use the countryside for its texture and because it's sort of, it's as much about where it is as what is happening in any story, I think. But, uh, I mean, it is almost gratuitous, <laughs> the amount we film outside, but we like it that way because, yeah. you know, it is. it does look nice and we don't get a lot of great weather over here. The minute the sun comes out when we're shooting the season, we just get out there, even if it's a second unit, just taking nice pictures of the sea or whatever, just to, you know, to, to give the program that texture. You must have to flex with the weather a lot. I mean, do you do indoor, you got a list of indoor scenes and outdoor scenes? Well, we, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, that, that has its difficulties because none of the cast live in Cornwall. They mainly live in hmm. London. Um, and so they've all got to be shipped in. If they're not in, when you want, you know, when you have to make a change, you've got to bring them in if they're free and if they're under ah. the contract that week, blah, blah. It's a nightmare for my wife. But uh, we do it. <laughs> well, thanks for your call. Oh, yes, thank you. And it, it really is a great place to visit and be in the is. filming. is It's really very, very exciting. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks. Martin Clunes is our guest right now as we explore how the area around Port Isaac in Cornwall has gotten a real boost in popularity since it's the setting for most of the scenes in his TV show, Doc Martin. The latest episodes of the series start airing this week on many public TV stations around the U.S. The series is also available on DVD from Acorn Media. We'll ask Martin about the international versions of his show in a program extra for this week's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. You can hear that in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Right now, we're taking calls from fans of Doc Martin at 877-333-7425. Sarah's on the line from Chicago. Thanks for your call, Sarah. Hi. uh, Hi. Thank you for taking it. Yeah. Yeah, so my uh, great-grandmother was from Cornwall, from St. Minver, actually. Oh, and very nice. I named after her. And I guess I've never been to Cornwall. I, of course, intend to at some point. But I guess I, I wonder what, what the personality of someone from this area is like. You know, I mean, does being so remote, you know, sort of infect their worldview in any way? And, I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of what it is. I'm not talking about the kind of stereotype of what people think about Cornwall, but your impressions. You know, My impression is like. is of uh, a, a whole bunch of really isolated communities, as in each village. There were huge gaps between the villages. There still are. Uh, it's not a densely populated area, and it's not a rich area. But obviously, with you know motor cars and roads and everything, they're all kind of linked now. But I still think there's a lot of disparate little communities. There's one. Not particularly, not a tourist town, but it's called Delabol, and we use their school. And that's my kind of yardstick, because Port Isaac is beautiful and sunny and a tourist trap, but that gives it, there's a sort of artificiality to it, to the community, in a sense, certainly from my perception. But in Delabol, you could cut that community with a knife. Hmm. It's so palpable. It's on the streets, it's on the message board of the school, it's on the faces of the school children. We always use the, the children from the school. And Doc Martin, <laughs> the show's been on longer than their lives now, and it's okay. sort of part of their folklore. <laughs> um, and and even if, is... I turn up, if I turn up in a Hawaiian shirt to open a playground or something, they, they, they still come, here comes Doc Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Martin, that, is, that town is called Delabol? Delabol. Delabol. It was, uh, okay. yeah, famous for a uh, grey roofing slate, very beautiful, very figured. Uh-huh. Uh, and it has a giant mine there, but the, the bottom fell out of the mining industry. It's quite... It's not depressed, but, you know, employment isn't high out, outside of the tourist season. So we, ha- we have that dimension of, well, they're small, remote towns, but also you've got the Cornish culture, and, and, and Cornwall had its own language until 
modern times. Is is there a, a dimension of that that adds to the charm of the area or the distinctness? Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it's got a, it, there's a huge identity here, yeah. But it is that identity of, there is a remoteness, and there, especially on the north coast, the trees are very short, and they're usually bent over by the wind in the winter. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Hey, Sarah, thanks for your call. Thank you very much for taking it. Okay, and enjoy yeah. the, the new series of Doc Martin. Oh, I definitely will. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Clunes about Cornwall, and that's where Doc Martin is set. Martin is debuting the sixth series of Doc Martin all over the United States on public television. It must be just a lot of work to put together a whole new series of Doc Martin. Why do you do it? Why? Yeah. Um, that's what we do. <laughs> I mean, is it gratifying or is it just to contribute to your business or, or? Oh yeah, no, it's really gratifying and it's really great. You know, I never dreamt I'd be talking, um, to an American author <laughs> <laughs> about our little series, you know, and because we do think of it as our little series because we don't have a big company. It's just me and Philip are in a desk, really. When we're not in production, there's nothing to us. You know, and we run yeah. our farm. Now, with all of your success and all the pressures on your creative talent, how do you relax and just kick back? Well, you know, we've got, these, we've got lots of horses. We have lots of dogs. Well, we farm. That's not very relaxing. But mm. it's nice to be able to strut out with the dogs and stay on your own land for an hour. Sounds like the good life in the south of England. Yeah, it is. It is a good life. <laughs> it's a really good life. Yeah, it's muddy. Martin, for all of your fans uh, here in the United States, congratulations and thanks for your work, and it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. And we'll stay tuned for the new series of Doc Martin. Best wishes, Martin. Thank you. And you look like Dr. Watson Lost been looking for clues And if I was Sherlock Holmes I'd say there's still a little sand in your shoes A little bit of sand in your shoes Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for help this week to Alyssa Schimmel and Chad Campbell at Acorn Media, Kenny Carapadian at Sony Pictures Entertainment, Christy Fox at CFPR, Eric Bright at KERA, and Angie Hamilton-Lowe at NPR West. You can join Rick and his guests as a caller on the show. We'll notify you of our next set of recording sessions when you send us your email address. Look for a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.